Well, it is good to be back um, from our, our vacation. We were driving on the way to church this morning, and it was SR who said, I'm so glad we're coming to Rock Valley Bible Church this morning. Tried to tease that out a little bit, and he just said he likes being here. Now, we had a wonderful time at Grace Bible Church where Tony Sinelli is uh, the pastor. He was here uh, a few months ago, uh, Easter time. Uh, we were there at the church, had a wonderful time. Um, but it is good to be back. It's, it's different. Also, one thing I learned is different sitting in the pew as opposed to standing in the pulpit. Um, you know, I realized that it come with a lot less expectation when I'm in the pew as opposed to being in the pulpit. So it's kind of it's been good for me to see those things and be reminded of those things again. I am excited, though, to get back into the Scriptures with you all this morning. Uh, the book of Second Timothy. I invite you to take your Bibles and open there. If you have any problems finding it, you can find it in the table of contents, or you can say Hebrews and just go back like three or four pages, and we're right there, Second Timothy. The reason we're here in this book really goes back about a year ago uh, when I was in DeKalb with some pastor friends of mine. We were meditating over the scriptures for a couple days, and our text of meditation those days was the book of Second Timothy. And for some reason, um, I just found a great time of encouragement in this book. Uh, help, help me to give a, a clarity, redefine, I guess, with clarity what the ministry is all about. Helped, in retrospect, even explain some of the difficulties that I have faced as a, a pastor over the, over the years. And really, from a year ago, it has set forth my meditation this past year. I mean, I've been preaching through Hebrews, but this has been devotionally in time of Second Timothy, so you're going to see the fruit of just what I've been thinking upon. Uh, it's helped me with renewed vigor to press on in the ministry, even through the difficulties, because quite frankly, ministry is difficult. It's, uh, it's, it's hard. Living the Christian life is difficult. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, it's not, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been found difficult and therefore not tried. In other words, it's not like people have tried Christianity and really authentically said, nah, it doesn't work for me. The problem is if people see it, man, that's hard. I don't want to have any part of that. As Mark Twain says, it wasn't the parts of the Bible that he can't understand that bothers him. It's the parts of the Bible that he does understand. That's what bothers him because he sees it clearly. And it's really the call of a Christian life is a, is a difficult life. So is the call to Christian ministry and, and difficult in, in the sense of not, not, um, not bad in the end. It's good in the end, but it's hard through until the end. And we'll see that thrust come, come out as we see in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a, uh, is a, is a very personal letter. Um, when I was on vacation talking with uh, one of our friends. Uh, she asked, knowing I'm a pastor, what are you preaching through? And I said, well, I've just finished Hebrews. We're going to start 2 Timothy. And she said, oh, I love 2 Timothy. She said, because it's so personal and so passionate and so engaging. And that is really what 2 Timothy is all about. And 2 Timothy will help us to see what Christian life is about and help us to see what Christian ministry is about. Now, my message this morning is really a detail, I'm sorry, is an overview of the book of 2 Timothy. My text is officially verses 1 and 2, but we're really not going to dig into those so much. But I just want to give us a, a scope and understanding of 2 Timothy. Lay the ground, if you will, so that as we look in detail next week at chapter 1, starting at verse 3, we'll, we'll have an understand where we're going with the whole, whole thing. So I, I plan to 
set before you kind of some major themes in the book. I don't have them outlined. We're just going to kind of flow and meander uh, through the text this morning. It's the kind of message that um, maybe Yvonne doesn't like so much. She likes outline and structure, but we're just, I felt like it felt like it just flows because it, it's really a it's a it's it's a pastor to a, a younger pastor, and the book just kind of flows, and so we're just kind of kind of kind of flow through it thematically, not not necessarily even right chapter verse by verse. And then, if, if we have time, I do want to recite the verse, the book for you, um, just to put the whole thing in perspective. So you can hear these themes kind of come through. Finally, at the end of my message, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Second Timothy is all about the Gospel. It's all what it is. Guard the Gospel, keep the Gospel, and it'll be appropriate for us. So I want to read the first two verses for us, and then we'll launch from there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved Son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We are introduced here to the two main figures in this letter. Paul, verse 1, Timothy, and verse 2. Paul wrote the letter. Timothy received the letter. Now, at this point of the writing, Paul had known Timothy for many, many years. Something happened when they first met that formed a a lifelong bond between these two. Phil read it in Acts chapter 16 about Paul going into Lystra, seeing this man Timothy as well spoken of, and within a few days or a few weeks, he wanted Timothy to join him in his missionary journey. Now, Paul knew all about what it was like to take a novice on a missionary journey. His first missionary journey, John Mark came along and deserted them. And so, Paul was weary about doing that, but there was something in Timothy that that just clicked. And for the next several years, they ministered together in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth. And eventually, Paul ended up in Ephesus, where at the time of this writing, he was pastoring. I think it's about 15 years. You do your clues. Probably about 15 years, this close relationship. Timothy was considered to be a son to Paul. You can see the endearment there. You can probably see that that Paul was his spiritual father. If you look in verse 2, it's to Timothy, my beloved son. It's over in chapter 2, verse 1 as well. You therefore, my son. There is an intimacy there. It's almost a a father to a son. You can see he calls him my beloved. That's just a a term of affection. He's just calling him my dear son, my, my loved song, my loved son. And in chapter in Philippians chapter two verse twenty two, Paul even talks about how when he ministered, Timothy was like a child serving his father, just like well, Paul, whatever you want, just submissive and obedient and helpful and encouraging all the way, like all of you kids are, right? Submissive and obedient and helpful and encouraging to your parents, right? Right, Becca? Right, okay. That's how Paul so Timothy was towards Paul. Had this close relationship. But it wasn't just an authority um, relationship. There's also a kindred spirit. In fact, even in Philippians 2, verse 20, he called Timothy of one of the kindred spirit. In fact, he says that no one else has this kind of spirit that Timothy has. He says that Timothy had proven worth and loved Paul greatly. And, and, and the difficulty of this letter is that, that Paul needed Timothy, actually. If you turn over in chapter 4, verse 9, you can see that Paul says, make every effort to come to me soon. This is Paul. Actually, he's in prison. We'll find out. He's in prison writing to Timothy saying, come to me soon. 
And in fact, even in 21, we see, make every effort to come before winter. Please come and please be with me. It's like a dying parent needs his child. So also Paul, in prison, about to die, needs his son to come help him. And he longed for Timothy to come. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I'm longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so I may be filled with joy. There's something as Timothy would come. He's longing for that time that they might have joy together. Paul needs Timothy, but Timothy needs Paul as well in this letter. Timothy needs to hear Paul's counsel because, quite frankly, things are not going well with Timothy. He is discouraged. He is struggling in the ministry. He's facing great opposition from some. Despite his efforts, false teaching was spreading in Ephesus. Ungodliness was spreading. Some were putting on a great show of religiosity, but in the end, really, they were hollow, making a pretense of religion. Others were seemingly trying to kick him out of the church. Others just never seem to grasp the Gospel. They're just always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Timothy was discouraged. That's why Paul is writing. And I just say this, that Christian ministry is discouraging. You pour your heart out to people. You do what you can and the church never gets really big. It's a, it's a struggle for pastors. You love those in your church with your whole heart, sacrifice for them, do all that you can do. Now, there are times where things go great. When there's a love of a pastor for the people and the people for the pastor and things are, are glorious there. My love for you is returned in your love for me. Um, and I, I know this. I experience this. I'm grateful for this. As I look out among you, that is where it is. The vast majority of you. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. But other times, I just say, honestly, it's not that great. There are times when you bring God's Word to people and they love their sin instead of loving the Savior. And in love, you come and speak to them, put forth the glories of Jesus for them, and they just say, no thank you, turn your back, walk out the door, wanting their sin instead. They know what you believe and they reject it all. Follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. Other times, people kind of just drift away um, from the church. It's not so much that there's outward sin and rebellion as much as their hearts just grow lukewarm. Like, church, smirch, whatever, just whatever. The Rock Valley Bible Church isn't meeting it for me. And so they go to another church to find and help them. And, you know, when people leave the church, more often than not, it's because... I can't meet the needs. It's a pastor, main preaching pastor. And, you know, some deficiency in me. I'm, I'm not the leader that I need to be. I'm not the preacher I need to be. I'm not the administrator I need to be. I'm not the counselor I need to be. I'm not the friend I need to be. I wasn't there. I mean, what, what I said on the phone it wasn't, wasn't helpful enough. They, they, they need to be stirred. And so what they do is they go out and look for someone else. Now, I know that that's not supposed to affect me and just say, you know what, I can't be everything to all people. But you try to be that. And it's discouraging when you can't be all things to all people and people just kind of walk out the door find some other spiritual leader who's going to help them more. There are other times when people grow angry with the pastor. For some reason, something I did or something happened in the church offends them. Sometimes it's my own sin. Sometimes it's not. Somehow they're offended 
and I've had this situation before. People have left and have been offended at me for some reason, and they're kind of kind of um, vague in their exit interviews. They they go out. I find out years later that I offended them. Try to make it right even years later, and they won't even tell me what I did to offend them. Is that discouraging? I say it hurts. Sometimes people leave angry and they turn and bite you and I'm grateful. One, one time they're singing your praise. The next minute they're out and want nothing to do with you. Bad mouth you and slander you. And I just say that hurts. And it hurts especially when you have believers who are in the throng go out with conflict. Psalm 55 says, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me and who exalts himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We would sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. And to see that breakdown is, is difficult. It's very hard. Very discouraging for a pastor. That, that, you know, I never understood this until I was in the pulpit. It's different than being in the pew. Because I speak more, probably do more of the leading. And it, it comes. It's just hard. And Timothy, by the way, was a hurting man. Reading between the lines, I think Timothy was so discouraged he was on the border of quitting. Not because of sin, but just flat out discouragement in the ministry. Pressures are getting to him, been hurt by others, ready to throw in the towel. And, and you know what? Maybe this is why Second Timothy's touched me so, so closely is because I've been there before. I've been on the brink of quitting in some particularly discouraging times. But I've known the power of God's sustaining grace and Second Timothy has been encouragement to me to press on in the ministry, to stay true to the Gospel and trust the Lord to strengthen me through these things. The major reason why Paul is writing Second Timothy is to encourage him to press on. It's always an encouraging thing for a pastor to hear. It's an encouraging thing for people to hear. Press on in the ministry. You see that chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, really, of course, it forms the crux of what Paul is saying. For the, I am mindful, he says, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. In other words, Timothy, I've seen your faith. It is true and genuine. First, I saw it in your grandmother, I saw it in your mother, and I see it in you. And so I'm encouraging you to fan that flame of faith. Stir it up and press on because God hasn't called us to shrink back. He's called us to a life of spiritual power and genuine love and discipline through the Gospels. Don't give up. Fight the fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. Fulfill your ministry. That's what he's saying. I do believe that the big idea... The book of Second Timothy is found right here. You know, when I train pastors in Nepal, we're going to have a pastor's training time here in a couple of weeks. One of the things we talk about is the big idea. What's the big idea of a book of the Bible? And uh, I think we've ingrained that in you pretty well. Like the big idea of Hebrews is what? Jesus is better, so press on. Uh, what about First Peter? Do you remember First Peter? Suffer now, glory later. Do you remember Second Peter? Know and grow. Okay, we're getting less. The book of Ruth. 
Bless even. Carissa got it the other night at the dinner table. What is it, Carissa? Life restored is how I say it. Now, you can say it a lot of different ways how I've said it for the book of Second Timothy that we're going to pound into your head. Here it is. Here's the book, big idea of the book of Second Timothy. There you go. Fan the flame, fight the fight, Second Timothy. I get the first part here from verse 6. It says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God. The ESV, I like how it says it English-wise, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Right? Fan the flame is what we're talking about here. In other words, do what you can do, blow your air on it, pump the bellows, get the oxygen in there so that God's fire would burn in you. You focus on fanning the flame and then you trust God for the heat. It's the only way we're going to endure in the ministry if God burns in your life. You try to do it on your own, you're sunk. And I say that applies to Christian life too. If you try to live the Christian life on your own, you're sunk. But if you work hard to fan the flame of God in your life and let God live through you, that's the only way you're going to sustain yourself. So fan the flame, fight the fight. We really see this part of fanning the flame here in verses 5 through 7, particularly verse 6. Right? To, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. The second part, however, of my big idea comes from chapter 4. You can turn over there. Verses 6 and 7. When Paul talks about, I'm at the end of my life. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He says, Timothy, I've been in ministry many years now, suffered many things, so I can sympathize with you, Timothy. But here I am at the end, I feel like a drink offering. You know, the drink offering is when they slit the throat of an animal and let it, let it bleed, let it drain. Lift it up and let all of its blood flow out. That's, also, that's what I am. I'm just dripping dry. I'm, I'm almost at the end. Blood's flowing out of me. I'm almost done. He says, but I've remained faithful. I, I, there's been a fight and I've fought it. There's been a course and I have run it. And I've made it through. And Timothy, you can do it too. So you, Timothy, fight the good fight. And that's what this is. Like this is the last of Paul's letters that we have in the Bible. The very last one written, he's on the end, brink of death. We don't know even if he wrote another letter after this. We don't know if the next morning he was taken to the, um, to the executioner and had his head lopped off by tradition is what it says it was. This is final advice. It's personal advice. It's autobiographical. And Paul is basically going to say this. He says, Timothy, you're discouraged now. I encourage you to fan the flame and endure hardship and fight the fight of the ministry because quite frankly, it's hard. And let me tell you how hard it is. Let me tell you the ways that I have suffered in the ministry. And so he's going to talk in all of Second Timothy about how much suffering he endured. And he says, basically, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. The ministry of Jesus was filled with suffering. I mean, all you got to do is look at it, and it was terrible suffering. He came to the Jewish people who rejected him, especially the religious leaders, the lost children of the house of Israel. At the time of greatest need, he was about to be crucified, was about to be arrested rather, all of his friends deserted him. He was betrayed with a kiss from one of his closest friends. He was crucified upon the cross all alone, even God forsaken. Isaiah rightly prophesied of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was the life of Christ, filled with suffering. 
And should His disciples expect anything else? They shouldn't. Jesus even said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they hated me, they will also hate you. You're just going to get what Jesus is. So Paul says, imitate me as I follow Christ. And I followed Christ in his sufferings. So don't be ashamed of that. Jesus suffered. I'm suffering. Rather, join with me in suffering for the Gospel. Just like any other minister of the Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 8. And it's not the only time that Paul called Timothy to suffer over in chapter 2. Look at this. Chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You cannot get any clearer than that. Suffer hardship with me. Similar phrase is chapter 4, verse 5. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Endure hardship. It's right there. It's the expectation of a, of a pastor, of a minister, of an elder, Darren and Phil. Of a leader, of a shepherd in the church. We ought to expect hardship. Unless you think, by the way, 2 Timothy is only for pastors. No, it hits the view as well. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. This is the kind of promise in the Bible you don't want to claim. Right? I mean, you want to claim all the promises in the Bible, but this is one that people don't often claim. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution isn't merely for pastors and those in the ministry. It's also for people in the pew. It's for all followers of Christ. And you can expect persecution. You can expect hardship. So by way of application, even as we talk primarily, as it is, Paul to a pastor, you can think about it as a, a pastor as being one of us as well. Because it isn't, it isn't just a, an elder and a pastor, just a, a one who's seen God work in their life, has seen some righteousness there, and we should be like that. It is. And the Christian life, by the way, can be every bit as discouraging as the Christian ministry. Right? You've come to know Jesus, has seen that His suffering on the cross was not in vain. You've embraced the fact that He died for your sins in His place. You've repented of your sins. You've believed in Jesus. You've wanted to follow after Him. Experience the forgiveness of sins. You see the Lord's faithfulness in your life. And what do you want to do? You want to share that with others, right? You want, you want to speak it out, and so you do. And you share the wonderful news of the Gospel. And then what do you get with people who you talk to? I know, we even shared in prayer meeting. Some people we've talked to, just about the Gospel. What do you get oftentimes? Indifference. Called, oh, that's good for you. I'm glad you're religious. Ah, not for me. I'd rather pursue my sin. Thank you very much. And that can be discouraging. I mean, it's one thing if one person rejects you, and if two, but when... Three and ten and fifty and a hundred people that you've talked to over the years? Like, ah, no thanks. That can be discouraging. Like, does anyone else see? see? I see the Jesus and He's glorious. Don't you see it? They don't see it. Because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that might not see the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. Or or you feel things about Jesus. You see how great He is. and, And they have no feeling like that. And you say, I want you to feel that because it gives me the joy and is a promise of life everlasting. And they don't. They're blinded. Their hearts are dull. And it can be discouraging. And other times even it can get worse when you talk with some people who are hostile towards what you're saying. And then it's not merely uh, just an indifference. It's an attitude that comes against you. And if you've been faithful in witnessing it all and speaking with people and confronting them with sin, you can see the darts coming right back at you and you know what I'm talking about. 
It can be discouraging and hard. It's not pleasant, but that is the Christian life. And there's a way, by the way, though the spiritual leader gets the brunt of such hostility. That's why when martyrs were martyred, it was always the leaders, the pastors of the churches. Why in China, those who are imprisoned are the pastors of the churches, the leaders, because that's where the brunt of the hostility goes. And Paul lays out his sufferings, 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 12. Look at this. He says, For this reason, I also suffer these things. He says, Here, I'm suffering. You say, Why? Well, for this reason. What reason? Well, in verse 11, it says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. You say, Well, for what? For what was he appointed? It's there, right there in verse 10, at the very end. He brought life and immortality through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. He suffers because he has been God-appointed as an apostle. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. God's will, appoint him as an apostle. He's an apostle and a teacher and a preacher of what? Of the gospel. And therefore, being a preacher of the gospel, he is hated and suffers and is persecuted comes with the territory. It, and notice here, it doesn't come about by accident. This is sovereign design. God designates Paul as an apostle, and as an apostle, he will suffer. In fact, look over in chapter 2, verse 9, almost a similar kind of phrase when he says this. Pick it up, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel... It's the good news of Jesus Christ coming perfect man to bear God's wrath for sin. There's the gospel for which I suffer hardship. I'm suffering hardship for the gospel even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul was no criminal. He was a righteous man who loved God and sought the good for every soul that he encountered. But the governmental authorities saw him as a criminal because he was upsetting the peace. And the Jews hated him because he preached Jesus the Messiah, one that they had rejected and even killed upon the cross. And the Gentiles hated him because he took away business from their idol-making factories. But in preaching the Gospel, then Paul became a prisoner. And that goes with the territory. In verse 10, though, he puts it all in perspective. Think about all his suffering. I'm suffering imprisonment. And one person even I heard talked about Paul's imprisonment. They said, you dig a hole 20 feet deep and throw the prisoners in. That's where he was in prison. So here he is, in a hole, all alone, made some other prisoners, no bathroom, no shower, food only by the gracious hands of people coming to give him some food. And he says, for this reason I endure all, all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it in eternal glory. So in other words, he's saying this, I gladly endure these things, for the sake of the elect. There are those that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world who will come to Him, but they need to get the Gospel. And he said, if my imprisonment helps in getting them the Gospel, I will gladly endure that. That's what he is saying. I'm going to suffer gladly because my, my imprisonment can help that. And Paul to the Philippians explained that. He said in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, my prison... Um, the fact that I've been a prisoner has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You say, because I've been in prison, the, pro- the gospel has progressed. You say, how is that? He said, well, Philippians 1.13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Everybody here who's in the Guard knows about the gospel because I've been speaking the gospel. 
And, he says, most of the brethren who are outside, who are free, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. They have far more courage to preach. Say, if Paul is enduring prison in that pit for the Gospel, I certainly can speak up. And Paul said that then the Gospel went forth with more boldness and more opportunity than ever before had he never been imprisoned. And since Paul saw his sufferings as furthering the Gospel to the elect, he was glad for that. Well, Paul speaks of his present suffering. He also speaks of his past suffering as well. He brings up some of the trials he had even before he ever met Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 11. Again, pick it up verse 10. Now you, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. And then the suffering comes here in verse 11. You followed my persecutions and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. You say, well, what happened there? Well, this was on his first missionary journey before he met Timothy. He met Timothy on his second missionary journey. On the first missionary journey, he came to Pisidian Antioch, preached the Gospel. There was good reception from Jews. And then the Gentiles came and Paul spoke about good news to the Gentiles even. The Jews hated it and kicked him out of town. That was Antioch. So he went to Lystra and basically preached the good thing. And Jews from Antioch came and said, oh, this is a man is a menace. And so at Antioch, at, at Lystra, he was kicked out. I, I, I'm sorry, not at Lystra, at Iconium. He was kicked out of that city as well. And then he goes to Lystra, same thing happened. Preaches, uh, initially he's received very well, they think he's a god, speaking really highly of him, and then the Jews come and incite against him. He says, no, not. And at Lystra, they pelted him with stones and dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Paul didn't detail any of that, but Timothy had certainly heard the stories. He said, um, these are the persecutions that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I'd come in and they'd kick me out of the city. The mayor would come and kick me out. And in one place he even left for dead. He could have given more examples, but this was suffice to just note for him to say, I know what suffering's about. I know what it's like to be a preacher of the Gospel. Timothy, you're struggling now in your church. I know what suffering is about. And I have endured. You can endure as well. In fact, I love though how he trusts in the Lord. The sub-point that we'll get at to, verse 11 again. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. We'll see this theme come up again, but it's God rescuing him. Paul reflects even upon his time in Ephesus of suffering. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith, who is, by the way, some kind of influential leader in Ephesus, probably an idol maker. If you read Acts chapter 19, you know of how the gospel went in and they started taking business away from the idol makers because people were forsaking their idols and following the true living God. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You can read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. He suffered shipwreck from his faith. Paul handed him over to Satan that he would be taught not to blaspheme. And then he said, even Timothy, you be on guard against him yourself. Because he vigorously opposed our teaching. He did not like it at all. And then he's reflecting, Paul is even his suffering where he is. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Listen to that. Here he was. In Asia, probably. He mentions this back in chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. 
He's probably in Asia, probably on trial. He desperately needs a voice, someone to stand up and witness for Paul of his character, of what change the gospel has made in his life, of how he's not a menace to society. And when the judge said, anyone to testify on Paul's behalf, it was quiet. Like the disciples of Jesus, nobody was anywhere to be found. And then, by great sovereign grace, gracious spirit, may it not be counted against them. Just like Jesus, who restored Peter, he says, may it not be counted against them. And, you know, that is the gospel. You, you can mess up, and you can be in sin, and you can forsake, and you can desert, but you can come back. And Paul says, may it not be counted against them. We come back. Well, we see this more just trusting in the Lord to, to strengthen him. He says, verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. He said, God is the one who strengthened me. God is the one who helped me. And, and that goes by way of testimony to, to Timothy. Just God, God can strengthen you and help you even through... Difficult, difficult days. And even he says here in verse 18 about looking forward to a future promise. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here is Paul trusting that God is not only going to strengthen him in the time of difficulty, like Timothy, God will strengthen you. That's why you fan the flame so that when the difficulties come, you know and see Him working in your life, sustaining you through those days. But Paul also knew that, that there was an end, that, that, that He would rescue Paul from every evil deed. When the evil deed came upon him, and you know what that's talking about? Probably talking about when the executioner comes with a sword in his hand, God will rescue me from every evil deed. He doesn't say He's going to rescue me so I can live. He says He's going to rescue me and protect me from this evil deed. He chops off my head. I'm not going to blaspheme. I'm going to continue to be faithful and He's going to bring me into His heavenly kingdom. That's what verse 18 says. That was Paul. Future confidence. And, and, and by the way, just... Christian, the suffer now, glory later. You see it coming here. He's suffering now, but his hope is on the glory later. Chapter 4, verse 8. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, I, I, I remain faithful. I've trusted the Lord. I've gone through all this. And God's going to come and reward me with this crown of righteousness. And it's not only me. I've not got this special privilege. It's everyone else who have loved His appearing. who say, Jesus, come back. We long for You to come back and rescue our souls. And he knew that though he was a prisoner upon the earth, that he'd be a prince in glory. And this future promise is all throughout 2 Timothy. It starts in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according here it is to the promise of life. Here's this promise that he's got out here, this promise of everlasting eternal life, eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus, right? The verse that all kids know, that they're taught. All of us know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, that He who believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Here it is, a life everlasting. 
that he's looking at. And do that. How you do that? You fan the flame. You you fan your desire for God. You trust in Him completely. But not only is he telling him to fan the flame, he's also saying to fight the fight. And that's a short way of saying persevere, endure, keep going on. Or as we said in Hebrews, right? Press on, endure. And Paul's own example of endurance really then becomes an example to Timothy with all that suffering. I mean, it's, it's alluding to that as well. Listen, I've suffered, but God was faithful. And I'm enduring all these things for the sake of the elect. And join with me in suffering. Like, come on, keep coming. You fight the good fight with me. And throughout the letter, there are encouragements to persevere. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Here's encouragement to persevere. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. There's a standard of sound words. It's the, the true and holy gospel. Don't drift from those words, but stay true to your course. Or verse 14. Bring the gospel as, a, as something to be guarded, something to protect, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And you say, what's the treasure? It's probably the gospel. It's probably the truth of Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. That's probably the, the, the core of what He is. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which is granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's the gospel he needs to keep. That's what he needs to guard. That's what he needs to protect. And he says, guard it. Don't, don't let it be, be diluted ever. And don't add to it. Don't add any works to it. But don't, don't let it dilute in any way. No, it's sacrifice to Jesus. Repenting of your sin. Turning and trusting in Him. And you need the strength for that. So fan the flame. And realize, chapter 1, verse 7, that God has given us this, this power and love and discipline to maintain the course. Another place to persevere. Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Rely upon Jesus and not upon your own strength. Rely upon Jesus and not don't falter in your faith, but trust Him. So you've got to be strong. How are you strong? In the empowering grace of Christ to work through your life. That's the secret to endurance. Or chapter four, 3, verse 14. You, however, in contrast to the evil man... You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of. Right? You, you've known the sacred writings from your childhood, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You've seen and known the Scriptures. You've learned them. You've learned them from your mother. You've learned them from your grandmother. They've been faithful. You've seen their testimonies. So you continue in those things. Keep the course. Don't be persuaded by some new ministry or new fad or, or new method. The simple gospel is good enough to save and sanctify. The simple gospel is enough to save and sanctify. It is. Preach the Word. Chapter 4, verse 2. Here's probably one of the most famous exhortations in all of 2 Timothy. Preach the Word. Right? The Word here probably doesn't necessarily mean preach the Scriptures, which it does, but he's talking about preach the Word. What's the, preach the message. What's the message? The message is the Gospel. Preach Jesus. Preach the message that we have. Be steady and consistent about your work. In season and out of season. When it's vogue to do it and when it's not vogue to do it. Early in the morning, late at night. When it's easy, when it's hard, you do that. Always put forth the Word of God before your people. Be ready all the time to reprove, exhort, convict with great patience and instruction. Be patient about it. Don't expect results right now, right today. But you be patient about it and continue to preach the Word. 
And here it is. Paul's just saying, continue on. Your work as a pastor. And then, throughout, scattered throughout the epistle, our counsel about those who oppose the gospel. Because there are many who oppose the gospel. Naming people by name in chapter 1. By jealous and homogenies. Chapter 1, verse 15. Turned away from Christ. Turned away from Paul. Chapter 2, verse 17, mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men have gone astray from the truth. And how have they gone astray? They say the resurrection has already taken place. I look forward to getting into that passage because it's very interesting how they can say that. Because there are Pauline reasons why they can say that, but they just drifted. They've gone too far. Gone astray. Or the bad examples, chapter 3 of Janus and Jamries, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jamries opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth. So it's not Janus and Jamries, but people like Janus and Jamries. Right? They're great, 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 great grandchildren, spiritually speaking. And they just, people opposed Moses and his leadership, and so these men, yes, are opposing you, Timothy. But the counsel here is, don't worry about them. They're men of depraved mind, chapter 3, verse 8. They're rejected in regard to the faith. But don't worry, because they're not going to make further progress. Their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice and Jambri's folly was also. Case in point, maybe Harold Camping. The world sees his folly. We don't need to worry about him. Predicting the end of the world. Nothing's happened. Twice now. And you just wait. Come October, when he's predicting something else, it's going to stir up. His folly is going to be obvious to all. You don't need to worry about him. It's just like Janice and Jambri's opposing the true gospel. Chapter 4 mentions two other men. Demas. Chapter 4, verse 10. Saddest man. Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me. And has gone to Thessalonica. That may mean he loved his life. He wanted to live. But he wanted to, to go. He deserted me. The story of Demas is a sad tale. And Alexander, we've already seen him in verses 14 and 15. These people who deserted the faith we're hostile towards Paul. And, and, and throughout Second Timothy, counsel is given to not only to say, okay, there are these wicked people out there trying to pull you away from keeping the straight line, but you, chapter 2, verse 15, right? The Iwana verse. You be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be shamed accurately handling the word of truth. You accurately handle the word of truth. You set it straight. You walk the straight path. And all these people are going to try to pull you away, but you walk that path. And there are some counsel here about how to do it. Because you can do that in a good way, you can do it in a bad way. You say, no, there's a word it is. We're going to stay here. And you can be real hostile and real angry and real, we're going to keep it. And there are a lot of people, angry truth keepers. Second Timothy does not say, don't be an angry truth keeper. Second Timothy says, be a kind truth keeper who walks your right, right path. And when people are coming along trying to derail you, just more or less ignore them. Be patient with them. Consider the counsel. Chapter 2, verse 14. Don't wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. When someone wants to argue with you about the technicalities of the faith, don't enter the fray. Just let them alone. Don't wrangle about words. I remember um, a while back playing basketball with someone, and uh, this guy knew enough of some of the difficulties of the Bible um, just to try to trick me up. And this is when I was working at the hospital. And so he starts talking about the First Corinthians 14, and uh, the role of women in the church. And so women keep silent. And, and sad to say, I engaged him in that, that battle and that conflict rather than just, I'm not going to wrangle about your words. You need to deal with, are you loving Jesus? You submitted to him. And then we can deal with that question. 
But a lot of times people come up and just want to wrangle about words. They'll know enough about Christianity, know where to, where to attack it, where it's, where it's hard, where it's all in this peripheral issues. And Paul, catch this, Paul tells us, Timothy, don't wrangle about the words. Just let that go. And that's not to say that we ought not to look at the intricacies of theology. We ought to do that. But when people are unbelieving and trying to attack, just let it go. Or, verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter. There's just, just, just chatter about stuff and life and worldliness. He says, when that comes, don't, don't talk about that. Let your speech always be excellent among the Gentiles. Speak about good and profitable things, not worldly empty things. And it's interesting. Look at verse 14 and verse 16. Surround verse 15. Which kind of puts a little spin on the Iwana verse. It's not so much be diligent so that you know all the Bible. That's not what it is. It's be diligent to make sure that you use the word rightly. Don't argue with these people. Cut the straight line. Know when to speak, how to speak. That's what it means to handle the word accurately. And particularly, look at 24 and 25. This speaks about how to speak with these people. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We're not to be quarrelsome about the Scriptures. We're supposed to be, here's what it is, set it forth, go ahead. With those who are opposing us, he says this, but be kind to all. And particularly he's got a mind here, people who are opposing you, be kind to everyone. Be able to teach, patient when wrong. So people wrong you, you just let it fly off your back. It's not a problem. With gentleness you're correcting those who are in opposition. Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, what he's saying is that, that when people are resisting the gospel, you're not supposed to yell at them and scream at them. You're supposed to gently, kindly, lovingly explain them. When they wrong you, you don't wrong them back. But you explain to them with gentleness, trusting that perhaps God may work in their lives. That's how you win people. Um, I've been devoting a bunch of my time over vacation. Some reading I did was... Uh, called The Tapestry. Edith Schaefer wrote about her life. She and um, Francis Schaefer wrote about their life biographical. It's been a good read. I've listened to a couple of courses about Francis Schaefer's life, his ministry. Just been thinking about him a lot. Jerem Bars, who was uh, served with Francis Schaefer, talked about uh, one time when he was in a debate with a, a non-Christian atheist. He said, you know, there are some debates where you go, oh, here's Christianity, here's you know, atheism, whatever, and they debate. And he says, oftentimes what you see is you see the Christians win and crush the other way. He says, well, what happens there is you might win the debate, but you lose the argument. He said one time he witnessed Francis Schaeffer, who's a very gifted apologist, evangelist, debate this guy. Basically won the debate. Didn't supersede him, though, but really genuinely in love sought to help him along. It was not lost on the audience. The audience saw the love come through, saw the truth conquer because he debated in the right way. So don't win the debate and lose the argument. Rather, win the debate and win the argument by the manner in which you deal with the Word. Also, about Alexander, chapter 4, verse 15, Timothy, be on guard. He vigorously opposed our teaching. He's going to vigorously oppose you with all his wealth and all his influence and everything. But you... Keep the straight course. You preach the word. You endure. You persevere. All right. And with that in mind, what I want to do is want to go through all of Second Timothy. Um, I want you to listen for Paul's encouragement to Timothy, 
in his um, discouragement. Listen for Paul's own example in the Christian ministry. Example of suffering. Listen for Paul's hope, sustaining power through the difficulty. And listen for Paul's counsel regarding how to deal with others. Um, I've done this before and I just want to do this. I thought about it. I said, should I do this today or not? And um, I just think, you know, it's going to make an impact on the kids. It's made an impact on me. It's like memorized this, really thought about it. And I just trust this. You see the overview of what's being done. Just just say, memorize Scripture. Maybe you're not going to memorize all books of the Bible, but it's possible it can be done. On our vacation, Psalm 73 was our our task. We finished all 28 verses. Just kind of a verse a day. Just kind of work through that. Very helpful to us. And uh, we thought before we went on vacation, we said... Um, what verse would be good? And we've got two borderline college kids, one high school graduate, and we thought, what, what, what chapter would be good? Psalm 73 would be good because it talks about Asaph and coming close to stumbling, but then coming in the sanctuary of God and seeing their end and how God, you place them in slippery places and, and how they're, in the end they may prosper today. And you may be envious of the arrogant today because they always prosper. But in the end, God will take care of them and the nearness of God is my good. Making the Lord God a refuge. And we just thought of Anai that that would be a great passage for our kids to memorize. So they will forever have Psalm 73 on their mind. And I believe it will bear fruit as they go out of the home and think about the end of other people who are arrogant as they meet them in college and other situations. So I just, I, I trust that this will be a, a help to you as we think about 2 Timothy. Picture Paul. Picture him in the pit, writing. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Guard to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me 
among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant mercy to the house. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my Gospel, for which I suffer imprisonment as a criminal. But the Word of God is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some... Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Chapter 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those 
who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin... I'm sorry, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid out for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But take a kiss, I've sent Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me. But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that as we think about these words, endearing words of a seasoned apostle to 
to a disheartened pastor. May over these next several weeks, months to come, may it stir our hearts afresh that we would fan the flame in our lives. And God, I would pray that You would bring the heat. God, to give us an on-fire passion for Jesus. I know this is my prayer, God, that I, I might lead the way in this. Just a heart's desire to serve and love the King of Kings that would, would not take this count, life of any account of ourselves, but only we might finish the course that You've given us to run. And may we run this course and may we fight this fight and may we endure the difficulties and struggles and trials of life that we face. Oh God, help us now. And Father, I would pray also as we segue and think of a time of the Lord's Supper, I pray that You would do Your work now. As the Bible says, we need to examine ourselves, God, that that You would search our hearts, as David says in Psalm 139. Search our hearts, God, of any wicked way that we might repent from them, we might turn to You, we might trust You, that we might see Jesus who is the One who has died for our sins. And realize that He is the only way that we can make it to the Father. I pray again as we reflect upon His death, His burial, and His resurrection, stir our hearts with fresh affections to Jesus, knowing of all that He has done for us. Thank You, O Lord, that He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according, O Lord, to Your purpose and grace which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. So God, may we look upon Him and reflect upon Him and realize that that is, that is our hope, that He is the one who abolished death that we might live. And He saved us not according to our religious deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but we've been saved according to Your mercy. And You've called us, O Lord, to a holy calling. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. Calling us to examine our life. And I would pray, Lord, as people see their lives and see unrepentant sin, sin they're not willing to give up, sin they're cherishing, I I pray, Lord, You give them the courage to let let the bread and the juice pass. But God, instead, may we be those who who look to You, who trust You. And God, we know that eating this bread and drinking this cup merits nothing of our salvation. He's not called us by taking of the Lord's Supper. It's the Catholic Church would believe. You're not giving us grace in eating of the elements. Rather, we are remembering the death of Jesus and acknowledging and eating, O Lord, that we need You. We're just remembering You like the way You told us to remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to Paul's Gospel, which is the true Gospel. And so God, be with us during this time. May it be a time of, of worship, communion with You, desire to see You exalted and lifted high. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.